This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Coming up on today's Talking Buffalo podcast, the 2020 NFL Draft is in the books. A draft unlike any we've seen before for very obvious reasons. And I got one of the best here today to talk to about it. Bruce Nolan from the Nick and Nolan Show, part of the Buffalo Rumleys Podcast Network. Recurring guest on this show. He's going to join me today, and we're going to talk about everything that went down at the NFL Draft, both from a Buffalo Bills and league-wide perspective. Now, when it comes to the Bills, by most accounts, the Bills had a very productive, sensible, practical draft. I'm going to get Bruce's expert insight onto all the picks they made. We'll talk about a couple of the guys that maybe he thought they should have taken that they didn't. Then we'll go around the league and we'll talk about who we feel had the best draft, who had the worst draft. And then, of course, we'll circle back to the Bills, talk about this roster right now, where it stands after the draft, what work may still be out there to be done, how he feels about this team. Do they deserve to be the AFC East favorites at this point? Tons of stuff with Bruce. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you already know this because I've said it many times before. I think that Bruce Nolan is as good as any. Buffalo Bills podcasts are out there, mainstream, alternative media, whatever you want to call it. Bruce is as good as he gets. He's here today, and I'm going to have him for you in just a minute. Before that, I want to let you know that today's show is being supported by 26 Shirts. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. Then that shirt is gone. Here's the cool part. For every single shirt that they sell, a donation is made to that specific campaign each and every single time, every single shirt sold. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate several hundred thousand dollars. Incredible. Del Reed, his crew, they do such an amazing job enriching the lives of so many people. It's great to see. Not to mention, these are outstanding looking design t-shirts. They're very comfortable, very sporty to wear. I have several of these shirts, wear them out all the time. Head on over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. And on that note, let's do it. Buffalo's got a spirit talking proud, talking proud. Listen up and hear it talking proud, talking proud. Build the life that we share with nice people who care. It's time to tell them all. All right, what's going on, everyone? How you doing? What's up? Episode 215, Talking Buffalo Podcast. Thank you to everyone out there for continuing to listen. Download the podcast. Really means a lot to me. Uh, before I get going with today's episode, you just heard me do an ad read for 26 shirts a minute ago. Wanted to highlight this. This past, over the past couple of days, this weekend, whatever, they went over 750,000 
dollars. Three quarters of a million dollars they've raised now for people in need, for charitable organizations, worthy causes during these t-shirt campaigns. It's just absolutely incredible, man. So shout out Del Reed. You guys do such an amazing job. And I know you're going to continue to do that for a long time to come. So very big props here to 26 Shirts as we start this show. Uh, also want to give some props to the NFL. I thought they did an outstanding job with this draft. There was so much uncertainty going on, this being a virtual draft that had never been done before, completely unprecedented. I thought it was really good. I really thought the NFL did a really good job, especially, obviously, ESPN in particular. The coverage was great. It really was. I was very skeptical. I'm not going to lie. I was concerned that it was going to be a mess, communication issues. Things like that, problems potentially with picks and trades and did not turn out really to be the case whatsoever at all. Really good job by the National Football League. Also, a really good job, by the way, locally. I thought the Buffalo Sports Media did an outstanding job covering the draft. Obviously, I'm talking about more specifically the Buffalo Bills. I really do, man. And I'm not trying to be here in ass-kissy mode because I feel like I call it like it is. I'll criticize a, a writer or an organization if I feel it's warranted, but in this case, it really wasn't, man. Everybody did a really good job. And I don't care if you're a Buffalo News guy, an athletic person, uh, WGRZ, WGR, TV, print, radio. I thought everyone, honest to God, did a really good job. The bloggers out there covering the draft. And you know, a few guys specifically, Joe B., Props to him. He did nail that third round pick before the draft that is mocked. He had Zach Moss going to the Bills, so that was cool. By the way, he also had Kyle Duger going in the second round. And I know there's a lot of people skeptical of the Bills drafting a D2 safety in round two, especially when they already had Hoyer and Pide. I said I said Hoyer and Pide. I obviously I meant Poyer and Hyde and still had the Bills drafting a second round safety. I'll tell you what though. We'll never know for sure, but he may have well been spot on because they didn't even last of the Bills. The New England Patriots of all teams took Kyle Duggar several spots ahead of uh, the Bills. So very good job, Joe B. Also want to give some props to Ryan Talbot from NewYorkUp.com. He nailed the Bills fourth rounder, Gabriel Davis. He talked about him on Twitter while everyone else was talking about other receivers and players out there available. But anyway, just an all-around really good job. Good coverage. Uh, the Bills did a really good job of getting these players available for Zoom. Just minutes after the draft, communication was great. Again, it was just, considering the circumstances especially, it was just an all-around awesome job by football, the NFL. Problem is, now the draft is over, folks. I, what are we going to do for the foreseeable future? Kind of sucks. This was like, uh, I talked about this with Bruce as well. This is kind of like, feels like Christmas night right now. You open up all the gifts. Then you look out the window and there's snow and it's cold. And you're reminded that you're about to be in for a freezing ass couple months. That's what it feels like right now that the draft is over with no other sports to watch. But it is what it is. And hopefully things will come around sooner than later. As for today, Bruce Nolan, I mean, what more is there to say about him? He's one of my favorites. I've said this many, many times on this podcast and on Twitter. This guy's just really good. He gets it. He knows what he's talking about. Very personable guy too. Enjoy him very much. So not going to waste any more time here at the top. I'm going to get right down to it. Here it is, my chat with Bruce Nolan.
All right, my guest today is my favorite Buffalo Bills podcasting analyst out there. And if you listen to this podcast on the reg, you already know this. I'm talking, of course, about my man, Bruce Nolan from the Nick and Nolan Show. What's up, Bruce? How you doing, man? Dude, the draft is over. I feel like I could just take a really long nap. I'm good to go. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Obviously, we're going to talk plenty about the Bills in the NFL draft, but what's your mood like in the hours after the draft? Is it upbeat, tired, gloomy? Like, for me, it kind of feels like I described this earlier, too. Like, Christmas night, you get up in the morning, you wake up, you get all your gifts, you eat dinner, and then sometime at night, it's over with, and you kind of look out the picture window of your living room, and uh, you see snow. And you're reminded that, you know, it's about to be cold as hell for the next couple of months. Kind of like that overcast kind of feeling. And I know for a lot of fans, casual fans, the draft's just another thing. It's like, cool, hey, the Bills added a couple of guys. For somebody like yourself, especially somebody who spends so many days and weeks and months and effort and time in the study in this draft, it's like, kind of like, you know, I'm using all these comparisons here. It's like a wedding too. You plan for your wedding for months and months and months. And then in the blink of an eye, it's over. You know what I'm saying? Like what you're feeling post-draft. Yeah, it's very complicated. It's a lot like my wife feels after Christmas is over, like you mentioned. And part of me is excited that it's kind of moving on to a different spot. Like instead of looking at prospects in a vacuum, you can look at prospects as in terms of how they fit with that particular team. Because when you're evaluating prospects in a vacuum, it's hard to be able to project their future because you don't know what their coaches at the next level are going to ask them to do. You don't know what type of fit they're going to be. You don't know what type of system they're going into. And now that you do, it's a little bit like seeing all the puzzle pieces together, but then being disappointed because the puzzle's over. And so it's very strange. I'm, I'm excited that it's over because I'm, I'm tired. You know, I'm watching and watching and watching and watching and writing and writing and notes and notes. And so I'm excited about that. And I get to kind of chill for a second but at the same time, it's like there's a completionist concept. It's like after you finish a really good book, you know, you're happy when it's over. But at the same time, you're like, there's there's a hole. There's kind of an emptiness that kind of creeps up. And you're like, okay, now I'm ready for real football because I need to fill this. <laughs> so you go from like basically Christmas right to Easter. There's no, there's not much of a real break. I mean, you might decompress for a couple of minutes there, but now you're on to the next thing. What did you think of the actual draft coverage? I thought it was really good, and I was very concerned and skeptical going in because of the potential for all kinds of glitches and major issues, but I mean, obviously, people couldn't be there in person, prospects couldn't go on the stage and hug it out with Goodell, but I thought all in all, the draft coverage was really good, man. What did you think? I liked it overall. I have no problem with the virtual draft. I could have done without some of the concerts on day three to fill the time. Um, I, I wish they would just accelerate the tempo for day three. But what, what happens is you end up missing out on a lot of picks and then they'll kind of lump them all together in one sort of in one sort of spiel. And I think that because they have so many people on camera and so many people with so much insight, I really think they just could have accelerated the way they did day two. And they wouldn't have had to talk about, for example, day one storylines on day three. They could have just kept going with all those things because we had a rare opportunity with the NFL network and ESPN combining coverage where you very well could have had in-depth analysis of every single pick 
That absolutely could have been something you would have done. And you don't have to do this thing where you talk about one player for five minutes and then you take a commercial break, you come back and then you do a concert and then you go, okay, let's recap real quick. And you're going to get 30 seconds on each player. Now, I think we could have done better there, but overall I, I liked it. Let me ask you this because maybe you didn't even hear it. You just talked about the NFL network and ESPN combining forces for coverage of this draft. One thing that happened on Saturday, and this has nothing to do with the overall premise of what our discussion is about today, but there was a really cool moment. I I believe it was near the end of Saturday where Daniel Jeremiah, of course, who works for NFL Network, was talking with Mort from ESPN, and he gave him a lot of credit for helping him get his foot in the door. And I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of casual fans especially, probably had tuned the draft out by that point. We're talking near the end of it. Bills pretty much did what they were going to do. But I want to play that clip real quick for people out there who might not have heard it and then get your reaction afterwards. Here's that clip. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Trey. Uh, I've known Chris Morrison since 1997. Uh, it was the first time I got a chance to meet him. And uh, as I was a, a college kid back in 1999 or 2000, Mort, uh, you had me come up to the draft. You, you paid for me. You flew me up there. Uh, you let me set off to the side of the stage and answer your phones. You can imagine what Mort's phone's like during the draft. And it was, the, it was a dream for me. I was a college kid in heaven, in love with the draft, and Mort took me under his wing. And then after I graduated, he helped get me a job with ESPN on the production side. And I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today if it wasn't for Chris Mortensen. He's opened every door for me in my professional career. So uh, as great as Mort is at his job, uh, Chris Mortensen's a better person. And uh, uh, Mort, I love you, man. Thank you so much for everything you've ever done for me. I thought that was one of the better... That was a really cool moment of the draft coverage. It's nice to see stuff like that. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, Daniel Jeremiah, for everybody who knows Daniel Jeremiah, he's a legitimately decent person. Uh, his father, David Jeremiah, is actually a fa- famous evangelist. But uh, that his father, David Jeremiah, is one of the people who ended up having a significant impact on Chris Mortensen's life. So there's a connection there. And I think that it's interesting because I think we assume in all walks of life that competition breeds animosity. And so even though the NFL network and ESPN are ostensibly competitors, that doesn't mean that people who work for those companies don't have relationships with each other and don't root for each other. And, you know, in in, in this world, when life is tough enough without people on your side, it is nice to see things like that. Yeah, I hear you for sure. And what, what's your setup for the draft? Like what's the Bruce Nolan war room look like? You got TVs, you got your computer around. Like what, what kind of zone were you in for the draft? What was your setup? So I have my, my notes out in front of me, uh, obviously from all of my, my prospect notes and all the things like that. And typically I watch it with my father every year. That is a a tradition that he and I have had for years. Um, it is one of the opportunities for us to spend some meaningful time together. My father and my brother share a lot of things in common. Uh, They're both Eagles fans. They both have similar hobbies, things like that. My brother and I, and my father and I don't have a ton of things in common. So that's one of the things that we kind of set up as, as our tradition is that my father and I watched the draft together. However, this year, because of the coronavirus stuff and because I was actually feeling a little bit under the weather, uh, we actually didn't get a chance to do what I was hoping we were going to chance to and watch the draft together. So it was just me and my wife. And it was, it was nice. It was really nice. My wife is, uh, absolutely more of a football fan than she used to be a long time ago when we met, but it's nice to be able to have that kind of small intimate environment where it's just me and my wife and we can chat. And uh, it was very, very low key. It was very relaxing. It was very casual. It's really not super stressful for me anymore, mostly because 
I knew the Bills weren't going to pick a franchise quarterback <laughs> this draft. Right. So that that lowers my stress level quite a bit. But uh, we just kind of sat back and occasionally uh, my wife would see a story on one of these players. It seems like every single player had some sort of tragic backstory, but she would see a story and go, oh, man, you know, I hope the Bills get him. I said, well, you know, I don't have a very good grade on that guy. <laughs> She's like, why not? He seems like such a nice kid. But uh, it, it, it was it was very nice. It was a very, uh, very uh, small, relaxing, personal sort of moment for me. And I really enjoyed it. I'll tell you what, one of the, my favorite things about the Nick and Nolan show, and I've said this several times, is that you guys are both Bills fans and I'm a Bills fan. But when you hit record and you tape that podcast twice a week now, that goes out the window. Just like... uh a mainstream media person who covers the team for a living. Somebody like, say, Joe B. He grew up a Bills fan, but you know what? Once he gets in that press box, fan time's over. He's covering the team objectively. That's one of my, the things I love about your podcast is that it doesn't sound like a fan podcast. So anyway, typically in the first round of a draft, from a Bills fan perspective, it could be a little stressful, no matter where they're picking. Who are they going to take? Are they moving up? Are they moving back? You got a million things going on through your mind. Was it a little more relaxing on night one? Knowing that, listen, the Bills are picking at 54. They don't have a lot of draft capital unless they get in the heavy artillery for 2021. So you know they're not coming up to night one. Was night one kind of like a little more relaxing just for that reason alone? Yeah, it was simultaneously more relaxing and also more boring. <laughs> because True. I want to get I want to get excited about the fact that the Bills have picked. It's interesting, you know, when you're in free agency, nobody cares about draft capital. But once you get to the draft then you get really antsy when you don't have a lot of draft picks. That's just a weird emotional fan reaction because you always want the next pick to be the bills. And that's just the way that emotions work when you're, we're a fan and you want more talent, more talent added. And everybody thinks it's a good idea to trade up until they go two rounds without a pick. And then they're like, wait, no, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So for me, it was, it was simultaneously more boring, but also more relaxing. I'll tell you what you spoke of tradition. And this obviously speaks of a, the times that we're living in right now with this virus, I've had a long-standing tradition too, going back with a bunch of friends of mine, well, more than a decade now. We get together around one of the draft and I would predict, not ahead of time, not so not a mock draft, but before the pick comes in, I got to pick the guy who gets drafted. And if I'm right, everybody does a shot. And you can imagine on good first nights of the draft, we all get hammered. Well, I didn't drink this time, obviously, because I was doing a podcast right after and we obviously couldn't get together in person, not just because I live in Florida, but because of this stuff. So for the first time ever, we all hooked up during Zoom. And again, these guys look up to me like I'm some kind of draft expert because they're more, I don't want to say casual fans, but they're not into it that much. They have no idea that I got buddies like yourself that are 20 times more locked in to these prospects than I am. But anyway, it was still a good time, an opportunity, like I said, to hook up on Zoom, which I had never used in my life before that. To, to meet up with six of my friends and guest guys and do shots. I think I ended up getting like 18 or something like that out of a uh, 32. So not bad, fun tradition. And in some ways, at least we were able to continue that. So anyway, moving into this draft from a bill's perspective, going in, what was your vision? Like, what was your hope for Buffalo based on the current roster, not having a first rounder, this crop of draft prospects, many of which you have studied extensively over these last few months, if not longer than that, more than most, definitely way more than me. What was your vision? What did you want to see the Bills doing coming into this draft? What, what was your approach? The Bills 
Jets have seven picks, and I had six things that I wanted crossed off the list. So I knew it was unlikely for me to get everything that I wanted. But I wanted competition at CB2. I think it's been well established that I am far more concerned about cornerback two than uh, probably a lot of Bills fans are. And it appears I'm much more concerned about it than the Bills themselves are, which right. is completely OK. That That is that is to be expected, actually. And in, in my mock that I did for Buffalo Rumblings, I openly said I had us picking one corner in the seventh. And that's exactly what we did. And I specifically said on there, I don't think they're as concerned as I am about this. And so I wanted to see that, but I wasn't necessarily expecting them to do it. I would, I would have liked to have seen a QB two upgrade, which is uh, we got a QB two for sure, but I wanted to see some opportunity there at QB two. I wanted some youth at edge rusher. We got that with AJ Epinesa. I wanted some offensive line reinforcements, particular interior offensive line reinforcements where we have a lot of people on the last part of their contracts. I didn't want to go into 2021 with a bunch of expiring contracts in that spot. Didn't get that. I want some wide receiver depth, which we absolutely got four and five. Specifically, we got some spots to compete at the bottom of the wide receiver roster. And I wanted to hedge at linebacker for the potential of Matt Milano being able to walk next offseason. So those are the things that I really want to see get done in this draft. Obviously, I knew full well that it was unlikely we were going to get all of them done. We did get some of them done. So overall, it was okay. My approach is this. I knew I was not going to do any draft grades. I'm going back all the way to 2006. Bruce, I was writing for a Fox Sports blog at the time, and I'll never forget this. I graded the Bills. They had their 2006 draft. They drafted Dante Whitner, then McCargo, then Ashton Ubuti, Coe Simpson. They did get Kyle Williams, in fairness, in the fifth round that year. But I gave it an A-plus and wrote extensively how this defense was going to change the culture of the franchise and the fortunes around for many years. Are you? And we're going to talk about these guys individually, but. Before I even get to that, as a whole, are you one of those guys? Are you a draft grader immediately after a draft? Yes, um, I am a, I'm a draft grader immediately after the draft, fully recognizing that it's ludicrous. So, <laughs> number one, it's completely ludicrous. I recognize that. It's absolutely, it's, it's, it's idiotic, quite frankly, to draft people right after the draft. And yet, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to do it because that's what the people want to consume. So it's the same thing that we talk about with mock drafts. Everyone, you know, people complain about mock drafts and mock drafts. Listen, mock drafts get more hits on websites than almost any type of article you could possibly do. So, yes, you can say all you want about mock drafts being annoying and you're sick of mock drafts. But the fact of the matter is the, the market has spoken. The market wants your mock drafts. I know that because they keep clicking on it. And you know what else the market wants? Draft grades. They want those things. And so if the people want it, I will do it. Even if I think it's it's crazy, I will still do it. And then I'm the other thing that makes it a little bit easier for me is I have zero problem being wrong. So if I come out and I graded an A plus, right, and that pick ends up being a, a complete disaster, I'm not going to get upset if someone were to, you know, quote tweet me later on and say, hey, you graded this an A plus. You were wrong. I'm like, yeah, OK, I was because I fully recognize that this is about probability calculations. This isn't black and white. This is dark gray to light gray. So I mentioned on Twitter earlier today that the idea that you could completely write off a prospect, like entirely write off a prospect is kind of dumb because it's football. Anything can happen in football. Now, we can talk about probabilities, and that's where your grades come from. Your grades come from things like that. And I really don't think this one player is going to be a good player in the NFL. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And there's nothing wrong with giving it a bad grade, as long as you're prepared for the idea that probabilities affect this stuff. So, yes, I'm going to do grades. 
I also fully recognize they're ludicrous, but I'm going to do them anyway because that's what people want want to hear. Yeah, the content is easily consumed, that's for sure. Now, probably the biggest surprise of the draft for the Bills is that Brandon Bean didn't make a single trade. He kind of explained why on a Zoom clip. And by the way, before I play this clip real quick, the quality on the Zoom is not good. Just like this Skype call that I'm doing with Bruce right now, for everyone out there listening, there's a much better software called Zencaster that Bruce is trying to put me on to. I tried hooking up with him, but I completely screwed that up. He's way ahead of me on that kind of technology. So I worked that out for the future. But anyway, back to Brandon Bean. This is what he said on Zoom on why he didn't make any trades. Yeah, you know, uh, I was just trying to, uh, I'm always a curveball pitcher. Today, I just grew fastballs. I was trying to, you know, just give give everybody uh, something a little different. Nah, I mean, I would have lost a lot of money saying the, the Buffalo Bills wouldn't have uh, done some type of trade. Uh, I was on uh, a player that got selected three, three or four slots um, ahead of one of our picks. I was on with the team with the NFC, uh, and we were – pretty much had worked out the parameters uh, for that move. And while I was talking to that GM, uh, the player got selected. So um, there was one other time where we almost moved down uh, in the round, uh, but they were looking for a future pick and it, it wasn't enough uh, value for me. So, you know, for what we, I liked what we had on the board versus moving back. Um, you know, it was about 10 or 12 spots. We were going to get a future pick, but, uh, just didn't feel they they were giving us enough. Now, I feel like I've gotten to know you well enough over this past year or so that I'd almost be willing to bet that you would be willing to bet ahead of time that Brandon Bean would have moved either up or down the draft board. So were you kind of stunned that the Bills took every pick where they were supposed to pick with no movement at all? As far as I'm concerned, that was absolutely the surprise of the weekend was Brandon Bean not moving. Right. And then even even more surprising is Brandon Bean was actually considering moving down, which is, I think, if you were to tell me my three options are move up, don't move, or move down, I think move down would be the least likely move for me. So the idea that we were inches away from moving down, to me, is even more shocking than the fact that we didn't move up. <laughs> I'll tell you, he didn't name any player there specifically, and I don't know if he's talking about Moss, but the one player specifically that he did talk about trying to move up for, I think he said like three to seven spots at some point, was for Zach Moss. Now, I don't know if that's the same thing he's talking about now. But anyway, let's hit this draft, okay? I want to get your insight on each player, your immediate reaction at the time, and of course, now that you've been able to digest these picks from 24 to 48 hours or so. Let's start with the second round, pick 54. AJ Epinesa, which, look, I... Just, I didn't do mock drafts, but it doesn't mean I didn't read a lot of them. And I would say for every 10 mock drafts I read, I probably saw this guy going in at least three or four of them somewhere in the late first round. So semi-surprised that he was available. But anyway, that was the pick. And uh, what's your reaction to that? I as well thought it was good value. I thought in the bottom of the first, top of the second, there were a lot of teams that I think value that type of player. You look at the New England coaching tree, New England, you go Tennessee, Miami, Detroit. There was a lot of players who I think would value that strong, long-armed base end in their defense. Someone who is more of a compression rusher than they are a speed rusher from that 4-3 spot. And I really thought that he would be gone there. I think I predicted him to go at the bottom of the first in New England. And... It was one of those scenarios where I, I do believe 
when they say he was the best player on the board. I do believe in this case it was true. Everyone always says that. Every GM says that. They're all lying, just so you know. Right. The vast majority of the time, they're they're lying. They absolutely draft for need quite a bit, and it happens all the time. But in this case, when Brandon Bean says, you know, I don't know how you got there. He was the best player on the board. I believe that. I really do about A.J. Epinesa. And I don't think it's as bad of a fit as some other people would think it is. I think if you look at some of the archetypes from Sean McDermott's previous defenses, you look at people like Coney Ely, you look at Charles Johnson, you know, you look at Mario Addison. These are players who were all 270, 275 pound edge rushers who weren't specifically agile or bursty people. They were long armed, powerful compression rushers. And I think that kind of pairs where well with the idea that they want to pressure from the inside. So when you have someone like Ed Oliver, then you know, pairing him with a speed rusher on the outside who is going to be more bursty and open up potential rush lanes. I don't think that's something they're really interested in. I think they prefer somebody who can, you know, convert speed to power, can win with hand usage, can do it without opening up, you know, rush lanes on the inside to let Ed Oliver be able to do his thing. So I actually don't think it's a bad fit at all. I have zero problem with the pick. I'm not over the moon about it by any means, but I'm completely okay with AJ Epinesa there. I do think the athletic testing is a concern, but had he not tested like that, he wouldn't have been there at 54. And people have really short memories, but they don't remember that coming into this year, it was Chase Young versus AJ Epinesa as far as who was going to have a more productive 2019 and be the first edge rusher off the board. Like that was a legitimate discussion that people had coming into this year. And if you only became familiar with AJ Epinesa after the football season ended, you wouldn't have that piece of context, but I'm giving it to you now. So now you have it, but AJ Epinesa is somebody that if you get a player of that caliber at 54, you just check the box and move on, baby. I'm not asking everybody to you know dance in the streets, but it fills a need, which was youth there. It fits the style, and I'm good with it. Well, I'll tell you what. I think Brandon Bean, who is more transparent with the media, I think anyway, than a lot of other GMs around the league said that, maybe because he ran a slow 40 time. I think he ran like a 5.0340 or something like that, that his stock might have dropped. And he also admitted that he did not try to trade up you know how it is with GMs. They always say, well, I wanted this guy to try to trade up, and he got lucky. He fell to us. He never said that. He also said that he stuck to his true best player available, which, again, in this case, I do believe. Let me ask you this. I've seen in the aftermath of him being drafted a lot of comparisons to Phil Hansen. Now, we're going way back here. Who, By the way, Phil Hansen, 1991, also went pick number 54 overall. Do you see that type of comparison? I think it's really weird to compare a five tech to a four, three defensive end. They're just going to be asked to do markedly different things. And so I understand that comparison. I do. I get it. But Phil Hansen was asked to do a lot of things that AJ Epines is not going to be asked to do specifically two gapping on the defensive line. So I don't know how you're supposed to compare that because they're going to have so different roles. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know, to be honest, because I never saw Phil Hansen play extensively, you know, in a one gap defense. So I don't I don't really know, to be honest, how that comparison works. I, I'm OK with it. I'm fine with it. I'm a, I'm a fine with it from a stance of, you know, Phil Hansen is a, was a power rusher who won with hand usage and didn't have a bursty, bendy, agile frame. OK, on that on that front, I give it. But I don't know if the on the field stuff's going to look anything alike because they were asked to do so different things. 
Trayvon Diggs went three picks ahead of this to Dallas. Uh, the Bills did pass on J.K. Dobbins. He was available. He went on. He went on to be picked next by Baltimore. Would you have taken if Trayvon Diggs was on the board? We've talked corner, and I agree with you for the record. I have badly wanted the Bills to take a cornerback early in this draft because I'm not sold on what's behind Trey White whatsoever. Now, again, this is not necessarily Bruce Nolan GM, but do you think from Brandon Bean's perspective, if Trayvon Diggs was available, do you think he might have given some real consideration? Or do you think he is higher than Bills corners than we are? I don't think Brandon Bean would have taken Trayvon Diggs. I don't. And the reason that is, is because if corner was that significant of a need, he would have taken one earlier than draft in the seventh round. And we all know that Brandon Bean is not opposed to drafting for need at all. So if he thought it was serious enough of a need to address it in the second round, then at some point, three, four, five, six, six times two, right? He would have addressed it. Therefore, if Trevon Diggs was there, I still think we would have taken AJ Epinesa. All right. One more thing here with Epinesa. So he's on board now. Do you think this means the beginning of the end for Trent Murphy? We all know the team could save like seven and a half million by cutting him. I think like 2.25 million in dead cap space. You got Jerry Hughes. You got Addison. You got Jefferson. Now I got Ebenezer. They'd have to keep nine defensive linemen, assuming they keep four defensive tackles to have a roster spot for Trent Murphy at this point. When you factor that in with the money he's getting, now I don't think they're going to go cutting him tomorrow. They probably would go through camp. But do you agree with the philosophy that if there's no major significant injury during training camp, assuming there is one, of course, you think Trent Murphy's days are probably numbered now? I think it absolutely could be that way. Like you said, I don't think there's any reason to make the move now. There's no reason to do that. I don't know why you would at this point, unless you flip him for an asset, which I think your opportunity to do that was probably higher during the draft. Unless you can flip him for an asset, I really don't see any reason to make a move now. But like you said, you know, I, I'm wondering if you're going to keep nine or 10 defensive linemen, because I mean, if you think about it this way right now, depending on how you view Quentin Jefferson right now, Harrison Phillips is DT five. So they're going to have some decisions to make on the back end of that. And this is another scenario where it may not necessarily be a binary keep him or cut him. This could be a situation where someone who we don't think was going to make the team ends up getting flipped for a draft pick. And Brandon Bean has been known to do that as he did last year. He was able to generate a couple late round picks with some players that weren't going to end up making the roster. I would not be surprised if Trent Murphy was one of those this year. All right, let's move on to the next pick. So they're in round three. Now, again, I said that they passed on J.K. Robbins in round two. I totally understand why. Now, Brandon B. did say with Zach Moss that this was the one guy that he did try to trade up for in round three. Moss is the ninth running back taken in the draft. What's your thoughts on him? Do you think he was taken more because he's a fit as much as maybe specifically the talent like J.K. Dobbins might be a more talented running back than Zach Moss, but he didn't fit what Brandon Bean was looking for and what he wanted as a complimentary back to Devin Singletary. I think this is important to look at this as a duality. I, I have no doubt that J.K. Dobbins is a, uh, a better prospect than Zach Moss. I had J.K. Dobbins as my RB1, so you can imagine how I felt when we passed on him. But you have to look at these things as a package. It's not J.K. Dobbins versus Zach Moss. That's not how this is. It is A.J. Epinesta and Zach Moss versus J.K. Dobbins and Jonathan Greenard. Like, that's your value proposition there. And of those two, I will take A.J. Epinesa and Zach Moss. That's my preference as far as this goes. So Zach Moss was my was my RB6. 
And so I actually love the value. I think it's perfect. I actually really like the fact that I think that really when you talk about Zach Moss versus Devin Singletary, they're both versatile backs. They can both block. They can both catch out of the backfield. They can both run inside. They can both run outside. I think really what you're doing is you just have a Devin Singletary. You're just trading a little bit of elusiveness for a little bit more power. But overall, you're still getting a versatile back, which means that you have a little bit of beneficial redundancy to the running back position because redundancy, I've been preaching this the entire offseason. Redundancy is not a bad thing in running backs because what it does is it eliminates specialization, which eliminates predictability. So specialization cannot come without predictability. You cannot have one without the other. If you have a specialized piece on your offense and you only have them do the things they're good at, then you're not the only one who knows that the defense knows that too. So I like having well-rounded running backs. I don't like having specialists at that position. And I think that the drop-off after Zach Moss to people like Anthony McFarland, you know, to people like Patrick Warren, you get a little bit more specialization with some of these later round players. And I think that Zach Moss might have been the last bastion for the Bills to have a well-rounded player who can be RB1 slash RB2, you know, at 1A to 1B with Devin Singletary and still be able to retain the same playbook while giving you still a downfield dimension that I know that they covet because they openly said with Brandon Bean that the reason TJ Yeldon didn't see the field was because they liked the downhill element that they got from Frank Gore. So I'm all about the pick. It's one of my favorites in the draft, and I'll leave it at that. Well, he's also productive in college, too. He's not one of those guys who maybe he turns it up in the NFL. He had over 1,000 yards rushing, three straight years, 38 rushing touchdowns. If you're in the camp of Team Devin Singletary, what does this mean for him going forward? Is this a true committee? Is this 1A, 1B? Or are we looking at still Devin Singletary's the one, this guy comes in as a change of pace? Do you think we got a like one of those platoon situations going on right now? Yeah, I think this is a 1A and 1B. I think this is what they wanted it to be. I wouldn't be shocked to see each one of them get 12 to 16 carries a game. And I'm completely fine with that because Devin Singletary is a good running back who needed to be complimented, not replaced. But Devin Singletary is not a a let's give this guy 30 carries a game running back. That's not who he is because he has limitations. There are things that Devin Singletary does not do well. And so because of that, it would behoove you to have a complimentary running back and be able to get the entire skill set in two players instead of the entire skill set in one player. All right, so we get to round four, and the Bills select Gabriel Davis, wide receiver from UCF, pick 128 overall. I am going to use a uh, tweet from some guy named Bruce Nolan that I put in my notes immediately afterwards as I'm compiling these. You said Gabriel Davis is the antithesis of to what the Bills currently have in their top three receivers. Boundary guy with size and stiffness who wins at the catch point and has the strength and size to bully, tracks the deep ball well. I'm going to assume by that tweet that you're pretty happy with this pick. Yeah, I'm fine with the pick. I'm not over the moon about this pick, but it makes complete sense to me because we mentioned that redundancy is perfectly reasonable in running backs, but specialization is a lot more fine in wide receivers. If you have someone who only wins in a handful of ways, that doesn't mean that person can't provide value as a wide receiver. And that's exactly what Gabriel Davis is. He is a pure boundary guy. He ran an extremely limited route tree at UCF. So this to me is budget T Higgins. That's what this is. All of my concerns about taking T Higgins were about the fact that we were talking about taking him at 22, not the fact that T Higgins doesn't have any value and that there can't have any value to a player like that on this team, but there can be value, but I much prefer prefer 
Gabriel Davis in the fourth round as opposed to T Higgins in the first, because I think you're getting similar players. Quite frankly, I think you're getting people who might struggle to separate horizontally on in breaking routes, but necessarily if you have vertical cutting routes, when I say vertical cutting routes, I mean, go routes, skinny posts, posts, stop and goes things where you don't have to drop your hips and make perpendicular cuts. Those are the things where bigger receivers sometimes struggle. And with UCF and the route tree that he run, not only do we not know if he's going to be able to do it from a size profile thing, we don't know if he can do it from a route tree profile thing. We don't know if he can snap that off really effectively. So I think that he's someone who's not going to play in the slot basically at all. But if you're looking for an additional element to your wide receiver core, as opposed to John Brown, Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley, who have similar skill sets. They're all short area quickness, separation receivers. You can play them inside. You can play them outside. You know, John Brown has the vertical ability that Cole Beasley doesn't really have. But it's one of those scenarios where if you're looking for a different flavor, then that's what you get. And I think it's reasonable value. When you look at his numbers, I think the trend continues where Brandon being really targeted guys who put up impressive stats last year. He's 72 catches. 1,241 yards and 12 touchdowns. Before we move on and talk about anyone else, the way things are with the virus and not being able to have workouts with people, do you think more than ever game tape from last season mattered? And maybe not necessarily Gabriel Davis, but just guys in general, that they might've been drafted higher or lower based on what they actually did in college. Whereas opposed to a lot of other years, it's about meeting with them in person, getting a better feel for them and work them out yourself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing that probably had an effect this year is that teams are, were much less likely to take risks. Uh, we were less likely to take risks on medical, less likely to take risks on character. If there was a player out there who had some questions about medical and you weren't able to confirm anything, you could find a reason to take somebody else. You know, we saw that with Bryce Hall yeah. start to slip in the ankle. And I know that there was some discussion. Matthew Fairburn actually put out a tweet about the scouts just saying, listen, it's not medical. He, he can't run. Well, I, I would disagree with that. I think he can run. But it's one of those scenarios where if you had questions on medical on any player at all, they were dropping really far because you didn't have an opportunity to confirm any of that stuff. So I think that's the biggest difference this draft had versus other drafts is that lack of confirmation on medical started to have people really, really fall based on your pre-draft study. So the bills took Davis over Donovan people's Jones and Antonio Gandy Golden, a guy who I heard a lot about on Twitter throughout draft weekend. Uh, I feel like that'll be a comparison for quite a while. He went 14 picks later to Washington based on those receivers. So if you were locked in on taking a receiver, would Davis have been your pick? Or would you have taken Golden or somebody else at that point? Uh, Antonio Gandy Golden, excuse me, Antonio Gandy Golden and Gabriel Davis had very similar grades for me. Uh, Donovan Peoples Jones was graded higher for me, so I would have taken Donovan Peoples Jones in that scenario. Um, the NFL did not agree with me. He went in the sixth round to the Browns, so the NFL did not agree with me on Donovan Peoples Jones. But when I start to get into day three, that's when I start to swing for the the, the ceiling with significant athletic traits. And that's what Donovan Peoples-Jones gives me. In addition to that, I think he's a better route runner than people think. And I think he was really, really hurt by Shea Patterson last year in the Michigan offense. So I would have taken Donovan Peoples-Jones over Gabriel Davis, but I don't have a problem with Gabriel Davis by any means. Okay, next pick, round five, pick 167, a quarterback, which I thought was semi-surprising. I don't want to say it was shocking, but Jake Fromm, I think is a surprise because many people probably expected him to be gone by that point, Brandon Bean, 
I guess he texted Mort and said that he expected the same thing. Maybe a third rounder, fourth at worst, but he's there significantly late in the fifth round. The Bills grab him up. The book on him, he's a smart guy, intelligent decision maker, but a subpar arm. Are we talking like the Buffalo Bills just draft a, a higher profile Nate Peterman? <laughs> That's, you know, it's funny because that, that was the book on Nate Peterman as well. Yeah. The interesting thing for me about Fromm, um, I am not a fan of the Fromm pick. I'm not, I wasn't high on Jake Fromm coming in. Um, I had Jake Fromm as being undraftable, if that tells you anything. So I had, there was uh, 11 quarterbacks. Uh, he was, no, he was QB 11 for me. So there's 10 quarterbacks. I actually liked better. I think I said earlier to say on Twitter, there was nine, but I actually went back. There was 10 quarterbacks. I liked better than, than Jake Fromm coming in. I think the best case scenario for him is you end up with Matt Barkley do already have, uh, you might end up with Colt McCoy, which is okay. Great. But the worst case scenario is you have Nate Peterman. That's what you have. And so I think that there's an interesting thing with, with from where I feel like we overstate how accurate he was. Um, there are some throws, I think, especially bucket throws that Jake Fromm did really, really well on. I think that his touch and his ability to understand trajectory is really, really, really good. But when he was forced to drive the ball outside the numbers or drive the ball, quite frankly, at all or throw off platform, his accuracy really, really tanked. And so I think we're really overstating how accurate he is as a quarterback. I hear things like pinpoint and people talking about Drew Brees comparisons and things like that. I, it, it's just not it's just not the same thing. Now, obviously, you know, Fromm can come in and and really be a huge asset and it could be a steal of the draft. And that's absolutely possible. But I don't feel like it's probable and I'm not high on the pick. I'll tell you what, what's kind of funny is earlier that day, somebody, I don't remember who it was, had tweeted, you know, that really popular meme where the guy uh, turns around and is staring at the hot girl that walks past him and the girlfriend yeah. next to him is pissed off. Well, the, the meme stated it was Jake Fromm throwing a short pass, which was the hot girl or the, the girl pissed off. And then Jake Fromm throwing an even shorter pass. <laughs> <laughs> the girl pissed off. Yeah. And then, of course, hours later, it goes back and bites me, and the Bills end up taking him. Now he was the eighth quarterback taken. James Morgan from Florida International went 42 picks earlier. I think he went to the Jets. Did that surprise you? Would you have been interested in him if he would have been available? It would have surprised me if you had a lot more quarterbacks who had physical tools in this draft. You know, But that's really, I mean, that's the same reason why Jacob Eason went ahead of Jake Fromm as well. Uh, and even though, you know, from beat him out, it's because, you know, there's physical tools matter in the NFL and being able to project players to the next level is a lot about thresholds. And if you don't even have a thresholdable, yeah, I just made that word up. If you don't have a thresholdable <laughs> arm, then a lot of times people are just not willing to take you at all. It's not even a matter of grade. It's a matter of a binary. You just do not hit the net, the relative qualifications to be able to play quarterback in the NFL. And so Ironically enough, that's what happened with Matt Barkley. That's one of the reasons why Matt Barkley dropped so far. And we see it every single year with some really smart, really weak-armed quarterback. We saw it with Kellen Moore. And every single time is a story of day three. And that's just the way it goes over and over and over again. It seems like we never really learn from any of those things. But it happens. And so, ideally, he ends up being Colt McCoy. Right? That's the ideal world for Jake Fromm to live in because if we end up with Colt McCoy as our backup quarterback I'm okay with that Colt McCoy is a reasonable backup quarterback in the NFL but that's really probably probably the ceiling in my opinion I'd love to be proven wrong that would work out great because that means we didn't just burn and set fire to a fifth round pick so I'm completely cool with it but at this point if you held a gun to my head and made me say it I'm not entirely sure Jake Fromm makes the roster 
Yeah, I hear you there, man. Lewis Reddick from ESPN, I thought he was really spot on with his assessment of him. He said, you know, on the, on the downside of it, he was talking about, all right, well, so there's all these excuses. A lot of his receivers had left. He didn't have much to work with last year. He goes, but okay, he got to the combine and he underwhelmed. You're there on an even par with everyone else and you didn't look as good as a lot of these other quarterbacks. On the plus side, he talked about him again, being a really smart guy, a good guy to have for your scout team who's a smart quarterback who can help the defense prepare for the offense. And that might be his calling card to sticking around the league for a very long time. But I keep coming back around to saying Nate Peterman, and like you said, best case, Matt Barkley. But again, fifth pick, this point of the draft, you think it's, He's worth a flyer, though, right? I think he is. I'm not a fan of his either, for the record, just like you. I have no problem with us taking a QB2 potential prospect in the fifth round. I wish it would have been someone I liked better than him. But I'm, you know, everything matters from a value proposition because you have you have things you can't use that other pick on. So I don't I don't like the whole it's just a fifth round pick, right? Because every asset matters. First off, now it matters less because there's less opportunity cost with a fifth round pick than there is a fifth or first round pick. So, but there still is opportunity cost because you used it on Jake Fromm. Therefore you cannot use it on somebody else. That's just the way this works. And so I'm okay with it being a minimal risk, but it's not zero risk. You and I have talked about that before, right? Yeah. There's no such thing as a zero risk move. Right. And so that's kind of what this is. It's a, it's a, lesser risk move because it's only a fifth round pick. And so I'm obviously a lot more happy with it than I would have been if we would have spent a third round pick on Jake Fromm for obvious reasons, because opportunity costs are changing as the draft goes along. But I would have liked to have seen a quarterback that I liked better in that spot. That's a very fair point. And yes, we did talk about this a few months ago with Josh Norman that sure it's a one round or one year contract, not for a ton of money. So a lot of people were saying there's no risk. Well, yes, there is because guess what? They didn't use other resources to a, towards another corner and they didn't end up drafting one to the seventh round. So sure you can't say there's no risk because this was a pick that maybe they could have went elsewhere with. So there's always a risk in everything that you do. So moving on to the sixth round, I didn't get the guy right, but I actually, at this point in the draft, I was saying get a kicker or a punter. And that's what they did. They took Tyler Bate, Tyler Bass kicker from Georgia Southern. A little bit surprised about that. What do you know about him? I know nothing about him whatsoever. Tyler Bass is my favorite kicker in the draft. Actually, a lot of people preferred Rodrigo Blankenship from Georgia, who ended up not going dr- drafted at all. He went to the Colts now, but I actually preferred Tyler Bass. There was a lot of discussion about Tyler Bass at the Senior Bowl and how pretty clear it was that he was a better kicker there than Rodrigo Blankenship. I think that when you have the ability to hit that kind of leg that he has, I think that that gives you an opportunity that we didn't have on the Bills last year. There was a lot of times where I was trying to figure out if Sean McDermott was being more aggressive or if he just didn't trust his kicker. There was a lot of times where we passed up 50-something yard field goals to go for it on fourth down, and I was like, okay, I want to be happy because I think it's the right move from a probability standpoint, but on the other hand, is this really Sean McDermott learning about aggressiveness, or does he just not trust Steven Hauschka from this range? So it makes me wonder if he does have a kicker he trusts from that range. Are we going to start seeing 60-yard field goals from Sean McDermott instead of fourth and one? So I hope that's not the case by any means, but this is a this is a situation where I think the kicker's a sneaky need. I think Hauschka hasn't been the same since the dirty hit from Henry Anderson. I mentioned on Twitter that I hold Henry Anderson personally yeah. responsible 
for us using a six round pick. I think that the, the NFL should intervene and they should go dock the Jets a six round pick. I think that's the only fair thing to do. But it, it, I'm okay. I'm completely okay with that. I, I, w- I would have preferred a punter. I think punter is a bigger need than kicker, but I have zero problem taking a specialist in the sixth round. I seen a tweet from Chris Brown, who covers the Bills or works for the Bills, I should say. Anyway, uh, Buffalo's kickoff percentage last year was only middle of the pack. 58% of kicks went back for, uh, for touchbacks. So maybe he can help out there too. Now with Stephen Hoshka, maybe the instant knee-jerk reaction was, well, goodbye, Stephen Hoshka. But you look at his contract, Sure, they could save a million and a half, but they also eat a million and a half of dead cap money if they get rid of them. This feels to me like probably going to go into camp, and we're going to have like a legit, good old fashioned kicker competition. I don't think, I don't think bases, uh, I don't think Bass's spot is secure on this team. I don't think Hoska being gone is a foregone conclusion. I feel like this is just going to be a good legit. I don't think this move was made a hundred percent that Hoska's gone. I don't think so either. I mean, setting fire to a six round pick in the in the interest of trying to keep a hedge against potential that a Hauschka doesn't improve. That's not necessarily a bad thing when you have a team that is as talented as the Bills roster is and is as well constructed as they are. Burning a six round pick is not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, you want to get good value from every pick. I just mentioned that with the Jake Fromm pick. But in this case, you can afford to be a little bit more liberal with those picks because you don't have desperate needs at tons of positions all across the roster. So I agree with you. I think he's going to come into camp. He's going to compete with Hauschka, and we're just going to see where it goes. Second pick of the sixth round was a guy that I actually kind of heard a lot about, Isaiah Hodgkins, where he's catches everything. I read that much about him. The dude catches everything. I saw a stat from pro football focus. He only had three drops out of 179 catchable passes. The stats look great. 1100 yards, 13 touchdowns at Oregon state. Downside is he's just ain't fast and he don't separate. Well, 30th wide receiver taken. Did this pick surprise you? Or is this one of those? Hey, this guy's just really good value this late in the draft. Let's just see what happens because he feels to me like he's almost in a way kind of like uh, the fourth round pick, Davis, another big, tall receiver, and they have three established receivers. Did this surprise you? What's your, what was your take on this pick? It surprised me a little bit that they doubled down on receiver, but funny story, I actually had a higher grade on Isaiah Hodgins than I did on Gabriel Davis. Oh, wow. So. I think it's tremendous value in the sixth round. I think that there are different types of receivers. I think people see them being size receivers and they kind of lump them together. But Isaiah Hodgins is not his big flaw with him is that I'm not sure how well he's going to release at the next level. But one thing that the bills do not have on this roster that I want to pitch to people as a potential idea for Isaiah Hodges, they don't have a big slot. They have a little slot with Cole Beasley, and he's a great slot receiver, but they really don't have a big slot receiver. Think David Nelson, if you would, Okay. when you come to Isaiah Hodgins. Isaiah Hodgins isn't a bad route runner by any means. He actually had a good short shuttle. He shows good ability to be able to run routes. His problem is he just doesn't release very well on the outside, so I worry about him against press coverage. But and so his ability to separate will help be helped a lot by you playing him in the slot. So if you're looking for a big slot, which the Bills do not have, mind you, they do not have a big slot receiver, then I think he fills a strange role for this team that you might not necessarily think he would always fill. But I think there's a path to him making the team. And it's to that we want to have an additional dynamic. We got an additional dynamic from Gabriel Davis with the vertical outside size guy. We didn't have that last year at all. Duke Williams isn't fast enough to be able to be vertical. He's not nearly in Gabriel Davis's athletic tier. 
And then we have Isaiah Hodgins, who gives you kind of a big slot receiver. And that's where I kind of think that he should probably start off living as he develops his release game to be able to play on the outside. Okay. Last pick here. Dane Jackson, a corner from Pittsburgh. I don't know much about him at all. Best case is this guy, another Levi Wallace, best case scenario. Again, I really don't know anything about him. His athletic profile is better than Levi Wallace by a little bit. He's a four or five guy instead of a four or six guy. And so because of that, I actually think that Dane is the right type of player to come in and contribute on special teams right away. I think there's a path for him to make the roster by really, really, there's a chance for him to be able to do it. Now, I think that the problem that you have with Dane Wallace is he doesn't offer you anything that you're not getting anywhere else. And so I think that if you're looking for someone to be able to come in and compete to be CB2, that's not what you got. So for me, wanting someone who can come in and compete for CB2, that's not what I got with Dane Jackson by any means. Now, I do think it was good value. I think he probably could have gone in the fifth round. So I'm, I'm completely reasonable with him as a seventh round pick. He is one of those players who just doesn't really do anything flashy. He didn't have a lot of production from ball skills standpoint, but Dane is a player who just doesn't have a lot of super glaring flaws, but also doesn't have a lot of super glaring benefits. He's not exceptionally fast. He's not exceptionally big. He is a smooth athlete. I will give him that. He was a multi-sport athlete in high school. He was a, a, someone who is a smooth athlete. He moves smoothly. He moves like a professional cornerback. There's just not a lot of necessarily upside there. So I wonder whether or not he's got a reasonable shot to make the team, but I think that there's a chance there. Were there any undrafted free agents that you care about? Now we're taping this mid-afternoon on Sunday, again, via Skype, because I'm not smart enough to learn how to use one of the better podcasting uh, internet platforms yet. But anyway, I don't really know of any. I did see offensive tackle Trey Adams from Washington signed with the Bills. He was at one time a pretty good offensive uh, tackle prospect, but has a lot of injuries. Is there anyone there that's intrigued you, or is it still a little bit too early in this process? to really uh, know of anybody. I think Markel Harrell is interesting from Auburn, uh, mostly because we didn't take an interior offensive line in the draft. I think that's the only reason why it's interesting. I, I think that Auburn's offensive line was really, really decent this year. And I Prince Tegawanaho is someone who I looked at later in the draft. And I think that if you watched Auburn's offensive line, they were just, they were, were very decent. They were very okay this year. And <laughs> I think that Markel Harrell playing this next to Prince Tegawanaho, I think helped him kind of get on the radar because a lot of people were watching Tegawanaho because of what an interesting story he was. And so I think that having Markel Harrell as an option is nice, but I wouldn't, I don't look over any of these people and think, yes, absolutely. That's, that's the one. And that's, that's a good thing. It's a good thing because it talks about how few roster spots are really up for grabs in this roster because everyone says, Oh, you know, it's open competition. Everything's up for, okay. It's a lie. It's just, it's an absolute lie. Uh, the people, it's an open competition. Everything's it's not, nothing's ever really an open competition. That's not the way that this stuff works, but it's a scenario where we should be really glad that the bills might cut a sixth and a seventh round pick in all of their undrafted free agents, because it means that there wasn't a lot of room for upgrade on this roster because of how talented it was. That's a good thing. But I don't see anybody on these undrafted free agent lists that really tickles my fancy. Okay, that's fair. So now when you take a look at this entire draft as a whole, from a Bills perspective, what's your biggest takeaway? I go back to being kind of a offensive heavy draft. You got a running back. You got two receivers. Trey Wingle said this on ESPN too. He said, the Bills are saying to Josh Allen, hey man, 
We delivered for you. Now it's time for you to deliver to us. They added digs via trade. They get their running RB2 or RB1B, whatever you want to call them. They get a, a wide receiver four, maybe a wide receiver five. The entire offensive line's already back. The offensive coordinator's back for a third year. The running back is not a rookie anymore, Devin Singletary. I mean, there's like zero excuses permitted to be offered anymore. I feel like for Josh Allen going into his third year after this draft, that's my biggest takeaway. Speak on that a little bit. And if you have a, any other specific takeaways as well from this. I agree with that take. I do think that there isn't really any room for excuses for Josh Allen this year. Is everything the most talented players all the way across the board? No, but you can't have all pros at every position. That's not possible in the NFL. And so I think that's a good thing. I don't, I think people get really, they kind of frizzle a little bit when you say that no excuses for Josh Allen this year, because they want to leave the door open for Josh Allen to not be good and for it to not be his fault. I think intrinsically that's what they want, but that's not true at this point. Now there could be some sort of crisis. He could get hurt. The entire offensive line could get hurt. I mean, look what happened with the Eagles last year. I mean, the entire roster just collapsed, Sure, but, but the last seven games, of 2019 with a collapsed and depleted roster, Carson Wentz played out of his gourd. You know why? Because he's a franchise quarterback and he elevates the players around him. That's what he does. And that's what we should be looking for from Josh Allen. And I don't, I think there's this fear of raising expectations because we don't desperately don't want him to be wrong. And that's what Nick and I talked about earlier this year. Would adding an elite wide receiver speed up the clock for Josh Allen in an unnecessary way is what Nick and I talked about earlier this year. And I was pounding the table going, I want to add as many good players as possible. I don't want there to be excuses. I don't want to know what if I want, if Josh Allen's to be good, I want it to happen sooner rather than later. And if Josh Allen's not good, I want to feel very confident that we did everything we possibly could because number one, that eliminates the what ifs in my mind. Number two, it speaks to Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott's ability to build a team around the quarterback, whether or not they got the quarterback right or not. So I'm all on board for there being less excuses for Josh Allen this year than there's ever been. Now, it also tells me that they believe in this roster because they took a backup quarterback and a kicker. And if you're comfortable with this roster, those are the kind of things you do because you're not trying to fill really meaningful positions in the fifth, sixth, and seventh round, if you are, you don't have a very good roster. If you're desperately hoping that your sixth round pick comes in and plays meaningful snaps for you and is an impact player year one, something has gone horribly wrong in your roster management. And that's not the case with this team right now. So I think those two things combined tell us they feel good about this roster. We should feel good about this roster too. And the expectations should be high for this team. I want to take a quick left turn and ask you something. I probably should have asked you about a half hour or so ago. We talk about Stefan Diggs. The Bills don't have a first round pick before them. Let's just say that trade fell through. The Bills were still at 22. They're definitely going to take a wide receiver and they were unable to move up. So you had the big three go first. And I think Jalen Rager won actually one pick before to Philly at 21. So if the Bills were on the clock at 22, needing a wide receiver, would you have also taken Justin Jefferson who Minnesota did take at pick 22, or would you have taken someone else who hadn't been picked besides him? If you forced me to take a wide receiver at 22 yeah, and the people who take, are yep. off the board, yep. yes, I would have taken Justin Jefferson. All right, fair enough. And like I said, that's kind of a left turn. doesn't really have anything to do with what we're talking about here. Bills draft winners or losers. I, I wrote down a little bit of list here. I want to know if you agree or anyone to add. For me, the, the, the winners of this draft for the Bills were Tyler Croft, 
because the Bills didn't take a tight end. Cody Ford, for those who want to see him playing tackle, they didn't take an offensive tackle. And I feel like every corner on this roster after Trey White, because it really didn't matter for him. Conversely, on the other side, the Bills draft losers. I think Trent Murphy for sure. I think Robert Foster and Duke Williams at wide receiver. And probably TJ Yeldon as well. That's not about right. You think I'm forgetting anyone else on either side? I don't think you're forgetting anybody. I think those are the players who are most significantly impacted by what happened in the draft class. Yeah, I think so too. So moving around to the NFL now, uh, give me a few drafts that when you look at it unbiased, which you always do, what do you think really exponentially helped themselves with this draft? I really liked what the Ravens did quite a bit. Um, I think that the Ravens picked players who every single player that the Ravens picked, I can see being a meaningful player in the NFL. Yeah. Not a single player were a throwaway pick. I mean, let me read this list to you, okay? Patrick Queen, linebacker, LSU. J.K. Dobbins, running back, Ohio State. Justin Matabuike, defensive line, Texas A&M. Devin Duvernay, wide receiver, Texas. Malik Harrison, linebacker, Ohio State. Tyree Phillips, guard, Mississippi State. Ben Bredesen, guard, Michigan. Broderick Washington, defensive line, Texas Tech. James Prochet, wide receiver, SMU. And Geno Stone, safety, Iowa. That is a heck of a haul for the Baltimore Ravens. And every time they made a pick, I would just go, oh, man, another good pick by the Ravens. Eventually, my wife was like, yes, well, apparently this is what the Ravens do. I feel like they do it every year. I said, I know. And this is how you get a contender year over year over year. I mentioned this when I was talking to my brother uh, yesterday is that you can be a good team without drafting well. You just can't be a good team for the long haul without drafting well. Because eventually, in the life cycle of a team, your draft picks are going to become more important. So right now, we're in Brandon Bean's hyper-aggressive mode where he trades up for things, not this draft, obviously, fills needs, goes trades players for picks, does those things. If Josh Allen balls out this year, and he balls out next year, and we sign him to a massive contract, the need to acquire cheaper players on rookie deals goes up. And at that point, the organizational mentality shifts to let's get more cracks at the apple. Now, I would argue you should trade down, not trade up. Now you should shift into more bites of the apple, more bites of the apple, more bites of the apple, and start to tune down that aggressiveness because you want more swings. And that's where the Ravens are headed with Lamar Jackson. I think everyone expects at this point that with the MVP, if he keeps up some semblance of that play, he's going to end up being a really highly played quarterback, assuming that the running doesn't cause any injury issues or anything like that, and he doesn't fall off the cliff. So the Ravens are stocking up on talented players and they just killed it. In my opinion, I'll tell you what, man, I'm going to use a bar analogy here. I've always, this bar that I spent years and years and years hanging out with, there was this woman there who was the luckiest person in the world. She would always like, there were dice games, drawings with regulars, you know, for money, stuff like that. Football square. She would always win. I feel like that's the Ravens. They just luck into things sometimes and they fall into their lap. Patrick queen going to them in the first round. I think Brooks went to Seattle before that. Like, really? And then in the second round, I mean, it was at the hands of the Bills, which, again, I understand why the Bills did what they did. But J.K. Dobbins, who you said was your RB1, he just falls into their lap at pick 55. It just seems like that kind of thing happens to the Ravens all the time. It's not like they were flying up and down around the draft board to land these guys. It's just like in some cases, they just they just fall to them. You know what I'm saying? So I like that. I really like Denver, too. I like what they did. Getting Jerry Judy, K.J. Hamler. They got Sutton already, Noah Fank, Gordon, Lindsey. There's a lot of weapons. Drew Locke, 
kind of like what we talked about with Josh Allen, where, you know, Josh Allen's is in year three now, but Drew Locke's got all the talent in the world around him. He needs now, at least skill position wise to, to really flourish. Yeah. Drew Locke is another player who's, who's going to run out of excuses sooner rather than later. And Drew Locke had a really encouraging end to his rookie year. And John Elway is one of those people. We're just going to get you what you need. We're going to get you playmakers across board. We're going to get you somebody who can get you all the yak that you want in KJ Hamler. We're going to give you all the speed. I mean, you got Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, and Alberto Quigbadam from in the same draft. So you added speed all over the field. You already have Noah Fant who had a good rookie year and has speed down the field. So I think that that was a good draft for the Broncos. Another draft I really like. Unfortunately, I really like the Jets draft. I yeah. really thought the Jets drafted really well. Makai Becton, Denzel Mims, Ashton Davis, Jabari Zaniga, LaMichael P. Ryan, James Morgan, Cameron Clark, Bryce Hall, and Braden Mann. I was a big fan of the Jets draft. I hate to say it, but that's the truth. I think the Jets drafted really, really well. Um, I was very upset about how well they drafted, but it's one of those things where they desperately needed it. They needed an injection of talent. I don't think that they really addressed corner the way that they probably should have, but they did um, they did acquire the former Colts cornerback and they did, they did do some things at that position, but not enough to clear up that in specifically need. But I mean, just as far as getting talent at positions that were question marks, I think the jets really killed it. Conversely, who do you feel like really dropped the ball who blew a chance to, to really improve their roster right now? I have no clue what the Packers are doing. I have literally no clue what the Packers are doing. And that's not just because I'm not a Jordan love guy. That I mean, it's a big part of it. Trading up for Jordan Love is a big part of it. But A.J. Dillon in the second round is almost blasphemous, in my opinion. I don't think A.J. Dillon's the, the necessarily the type of running back that you really want to have uh, in that offense with Aaron Rodgers. Josiah DeGuara, I understand what they view for him. They said openly that they view him as a Kyle Juszczyk sort of a player in the 49ers. But if you assume that the best and most versatile fullback in the game, which is Kyle Juszczyk, if you assume the best case scenario, he's still probably not worth a third round pick. So that was a weird reach. I don't think John Runyon was draftable. They drafted him in the sixth. I don't think John Runyon was draftable at all. I liked Jonathan Garvin in the seventh for them, but that's basically it. That is the only pick they made that I was like, yeah, okay, sure. So I really wasn't a fan of the Packers draft at all. The other NFC North team, I was not a fan of the Chicago Bears. Colt Komet at 43 overall, I have no clue what you're doing with that. I just no clue. I, I think Cole Komet has a fit, but you just got Jimmy Graham. And I don't know how many, I don't know how many sets you're going to run. I think the bears have something like 11 tight ends on their roster right now. It's very, very strange. Um, Jalen Johnson. I really liked, but aside from that, Lachavia Simmons, Arlington Hambright, uh, some of their later round picks, not so much. I just, I just didn't love what the bears did. It's no, I don't think it was as grievous as egregious, excuse me, as what the Packers did. But those are the two teams that I just, I wasn't a fan of what they did. I got to be honest with you, man. I'll even take it a step further when it comes to Green Bay. That's one of the worst drafts that I could ever remember any team having. I mean, this is a team that went 13 and three a year ago. They make it to the NFC championship game. Aaron Rodgers throws for 4,000 yards, only four interceptions. Point being, he's far from washed up. He's still under contract for like four more years. They have a good running back. They need a wide receiver badly outside of Devontae Adams. This is the deepest wide receiver draft maybe ever. I think 36 wide receivers ended up getting drafted, dude. Green Bay didn't take one. You already talked about Dylan. I just don't get it. A horrible draft. 
And if you're Aaron Rodgers, by the way, who apparently oh, man. they didn't even communicate to him, what are you thinking right now? You're the franchise guy. You're a, forget about the Hall of Fame because that's down the road. We're talking about right now. You're a franchise guy. You're still in the contract for four more years. You'd led the team to a 13 and three record, 4,000 yards. They trade up for quarterback. They don't tell you. They don't give you any receiver. Do you, do you think kind of like they're starting to push you out the door a little bit? I, don't I think it's it. going to, I think it's going to tick him off even more than he's already ticked off. I think Rogers has a naturally sour disposition. I don't think this is certainly going to help, but I really think that this is a scenario where I think that the Packers lack the organizational awareness to understand how, how you win in today's NFL. And so we, we just have a disagreement on that. So if I was, you know, a Packers blogger and I was having discussions with about the Packers organization, I would say, listen, that the organizational landscape for quarterbacks has changed since Aaron Rodgers came into the league. One of the benefits you have right now in the quarterback market is the ability to fail quickly. So what has changed with the rookie wage scales is you want the rookie quarterback to come in. You want them to play as soon as possible because you want the binary answer. If they're good, you have a rookie quarterback on a rookie contract being able to build around them. That's great. If they're not good, you can fail quickly at the position and try again. You don't want the quarterback to sit for two or three years anymore. The landscape has changed since the time when Aaron Rodgers came in and sat behind Brett Favre for multiple years. That's not the best way to manage resources anymore. It used to be a perfectly reasonable way to manage resources. It is no longer that way, which is when it comes to philosophically how I view team building, which is the way versus the way that Green Bay views team building. So the two of us have a disagreement on the way it is to properly build. I don't want to take a first round quarterback and sit them for two years. I have no interest in doing that because if they're good, I wasted two years of good quarterback play on rookie. Well, he needs to learn to develop the, the amount of people who have sat for two years and then ended up being good is very, very rare. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Patrick Mahomes sat for entire year Aaron Rodgers famously sat for, sat for multiple years, but those people are extreme statistical outliers like unbelievable statistical outliers. So banking your entire franchise's future on that significance of a statistical outlier is a bad idea. We talked about probability calculations. That's what this is. The probability is that's not the case. It doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means it's not probable. And so Green Bay and I have different organizational philosophies. I know it sounds extremely arrogant for me to chastise a professional sports organization, but that, I, can, I can disagree with them. And I do in this case. Fair enough. So who are a few of your favorite like mid to late round steals? Like guys that you've spent a lot of time looking at. And again, you've been very busy and worked hard throughout this process. Now that it's over, you look back and you're like, I really like this guy. And he went later in the draft than I thought he was going to be. And he's probably going to be a really good fit somewhere. Curtis Weaver at 164 overall to Miami is absolute highway robbery, in my opinion. And I also think he fits that defense really well. We talked earlier about long compression pass rushers, people who are not as silly agile or bendy. And I think Curtis Weaver has a converted defensive lineman, converted defensive tackle, rather. Now he's on the end. I think that he fits that New England, Miami, Detroit sort of style defense really well. I think he's one of those rare people who I think can come in and contribute. After he got drafted in the fifth round, I had a second round grade on him. So I think it's absolute steal. I think Nick Coe, who is an undrafted free agent who signed allegedly with the Patriots, I think that's someone else who I think can come in and play and actually, you know, maybe get some snaps. 
Uh, Bryce Hall, 158 overall to the Jets, I really liked. And Zach Bond, 74 overall to the New Orleans Saints. I actually don't think the Saints are going to use him as well as another team like New England replacing Kyle Van Noy potentially could have. I actually thought he'd be a beautiful fit in Miami or New England or Detroit. But I think that if you say that you got rid of A.J. Klein, but with this, with the Saints did, and then you picked up Zach Bond, that is an unbelievable athletic upgrade. And so I thought that was a steal too. I think maybe one of the biggest surprises for the draft, for me anyway, were the New England Patriots. I would have bet my life going into this draft. They were either going to take Love at 23 or that they would find a way and end up with somebody like Jalen Hurts. Didn't draft a quarterback whatsoever. I got to ask you this, man. Do you buy New England going into this season with Jared Stidham only having to overcome Brian Hoyer? for QB1. I know that's the sentiment and it sure seems that way right now. Again, we're taping this on Sunday. It hasn't been done yet, but the expectation is that Winston is going to the New Orleans Saints. Don't know who's really out there besides Cam Newton or trade, maybe any Dalton, something. But do you feel like this is going to, I just don't buy it, man. I don't know. And so, I'm probably wrong, but. Funny story. I actually did predict that in the draft. I had the, Patriots trading away from Jordan Love in my mock draft. And I specifically explained it this way when I was talking about it on the podcast and that the Patriots have something that a lot of other organizations don't have, which is they have credibility to be bad for a year. And so Bill Belichick's thinking to himself now, okay, I can take QB four at 23 overall, or I can put Jared Stidham in. And if Jared Stidham's good, great. I'm, I'm fine. If Jared Stidham's bad, I get a crack at Trevor Lawrence next year. Yeah. So if I have to take my medicine for one year, no one's getting fired. That's the difference. If the Patriots tank out and go two and 14 this year, which I don't think they're going to do. I think they're far, far too well coached to do that. But if they were to tank out, I think that this is a scenario where Bill Belichick knows he's not going to get fired. Now, the Boston fans will lose their marbles because there's an entire generation of Boston fans who have grown up and not been able to understand what losing it looks like. But the Patriots are in a rare position where either way, they're fine. If Stidham is great, great. If Stidham is terrible, who cares? They get a high pick next year. They can pick a quarterback, but they don't want to force themselves to pick a quarterback that they may, maybe don't feel great about just to fill a hole when they know they've got time. And that's the benefit you have when you were Bill Belichick. When you have that many rings, you have the benefit of going, listen, if we suck, so be it. And we have all these draft assets that come along with losing people in free agency and getting compensatory picks. If we have to trade up next year for a quarterback in the first round, so be it. So I actually predicted that it was one of the few things I got right, actually this particular <laughs> mock draft, but I'm, I'm not shocked to be honest. I would not be shocked if you went into the year with Stidham and Hoyer, Hoyer. Now it also wouldn't shock me if they swung a trade for Andy Dalton by any means, but it certainly wouldn't shock me if they rolled with Stidham and Hoyer. I'll tell you what, the deck is really stacked and unfairly so, by the way, in Tom Brady's favor right now in terms of the whole who was more important because, you know, people got to debate and argue everything in the world. Who is more important to the Patriots dynasty? Tom Brady's going to a, a very good team with a lot of talent that could win right now, whereas the Patriots probably are going to take a step back. So that's kind of ammunition for people who like to argue about that kind of stupid shit. But anyway, so the draft's over other than maybe a minor move in free agency. For the most part, it's over. The The offseason, the Bills roster pretty much set going into camp. Again, for the most part, there might be a change or two, but 
How are you feeling right now? Is this a team that to you is deserving of being the Vegas betting favorites in the AFC East? Yes, I absolutely think it is. And I think that we should be comfortable with that. I think that's one of the things that Nick and I are going to spend a lot of time this offseason talking about is being okay with higher expectations. It's okay to expect Josh Allen to be a good quarterback this year, not an okay quarterback, not a meh quarterback. It's okay to expect him to be a good quarterback because he should be this year. The excuses have been removed for him. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have done a good job of building this roster. This is a good football team. It is a good front office who gets you good players. This is as competent and as well-structured as this franchise has been in over 20 years. That's just the way we're, we are right now. And it's been so long since we've been able to justifiably have those expectations that I don't think we're necessarily comfortable with it, but we should be. We absolutely should be. It's okay to expect this team to do good things and to hold them to a higher standard. And when they don't do well to be able to say, listen, you, you should have done better here and be able to say, you know, Hey, Sean McDermott, you've got a talented team. You should have done better. Josh Allen, you've got talented weapons. You should have done better. Like it's okay to hold them to that standard. And I think that's where we're at now as an organization. I completely think it's reasonable for people to expect that the Buffalo Bills win the AFC East this year. I think that's a reasonable expectation. And I think that we should expect it to be done. What about Miami? To me, they're scarier than New England at this point. They got a future franchise quarterback, hopefully for them anyway. Two guys are probably going to start early on the offensive line, a third corner in the draft. So a productive draft, they trade for Matt Burita. They added a ton of free agency, especially on the defensive side. Again, New England has not done much. It's expected that they're going to take a step back. And you know how this is, Bruce, in the NFL. Every year, a team comes out of nowhere who sucks mm. a year before. And next thing you know, they're in the playoffs. Look at San Francisco. Look no further. Two years ago, they're 4-12. and 12. Last year, they're a half a quarter away from being Super Bowl champions. So I agree with you, but I also, at the same token, it's not New England. Don't dismiss Miami, especially, hey, Ryan Fitzpatrick can still play a little bit, even if it's going to be one more year. I agree with you that they should be the favorite, but I'm not overconfident whatsoever. And it's not because of New England. It's because of Miami. I think if Miami jumps Buffalo and they win the division and Buffalo misses the playoffs or they get a wild card, I think that we should view that as an indictment at that point of the way that Miami has built their team versus the way we should be ahead of them. Like it, it, we should expect to be ahead of them, right? We're further along in the rebuild. And if they were to jump us this year for whatever reason, I do think that is an indictment absolutely of the way that this, this team has been, has been built as far as the hate of the head coach or the quarterback or something along those lines. I really think this team is going to go as far as Josh Allen takes them this year. I really do because I don't see a lot of excuses elsewhere on the roster. So I am, I am reasonably, this is the multiple time I've said this on the podcast with you. I am reasonably having high expectations for Josh Allen this year. Year three, you know, is not a time when you say, well, you know, he's still a young player. He's still, there's not a lot of players who had three years that were okay and then totally broke out year four or five. That's not a very common thing. So unless you're telling me that Josh Allen is one in a billion, you know, unless you're telling him that, that that's what he is, then if he plays all 16 games and barring some sort of significant thing, I feel very, very comfortable that by the end of 2020, we're going to know who he is. And I think this is a huge year for him to be able to step forward, been in the same offense for three years. I'm so glad we did not swap offensive coordinators this year, especially with this in hindsight, with the, the weird truncated offseason we're probably likely to have. And I think that 
if Miami jumps us, it'd probably be because either Sean McDermott or Josh Allen didn't live up to expectations. Very fair point. All right, so last thing here. The draft's over now. We focus on football. Well, at least you focus on football anyway. I talk about all kinds of shit on this podcast. Hockey, music, whatever. Buffalo stuff. Does the process of coming up with creative content that fans want to consume, you and Nick, does it get a little more challenging now around this? And now it's not the first time you've done this post-draft, of course, but does that process get a little more challenging around this time of year during that lull between now and training camp? And again, given the coronavirus, who knows the state of when that's even going to start? I think one of the benefits to being on a podcast with Nick is Nick is a very creative guy. I am not. I am not a creative person at all. I have about as much creativity in my body as, uh, you know, this pen that I'm holding does. But, you know, and I think that when you are freed from the schedule, from the, we have to talk about this because it's pre-draft. We have to talk about this because it's free agency. We have to talk about this because it's combine, right? When you're freed from that, I have a feeling that it kind of opens up a little bit of creativity with Nick and I, especially with Nick. And I think some of our best podcasts have come in the dog days of summer because it allows us to really be a little bit more creative and flex our muscles a little bit. in some things I'm thinking specifically about the Sean McDermott podcast from last year, the podcast we did on the Earhart Perkins offensive system and Brian Dable last year. These are some of our best podcasts and these are, these are podcasts we wouldn't necessarily be able to do if we were restricted by the NFL schedule. So I don't get as, frustrated or as, as concerned as some might mostly because I've got Nick and I have the creative mind there who can tell me, you know, Bruce, I really want to talk about this. I'll go, okay, well that's about two days worth of research. So I'll see you in two days and we'll, (laughs) and we'll get it done. And, uh, and Nick is, uh, an asset to be able to have in, especially at this time of the year. Yeah. I'll tell you what, big tip of the cap to, to Nick bat, very creative dude. And you guys used to get together in person and tape your show every week. And now, uh, in part, at least because of the coronavirus, and you guys have found another way to, to record remotely where it sounds like you guys are in a studio together, which, again, me and you were supposed to tape that way today, but I still am not quite there yet, been able to figure that out. So we had to settle for Skype, which for, for the most part is pretty good. But, you know, you have some issues here and there. And I'm sure you guys will come up with some creative content two shows a week. So everyone out there on Twitter, give Bruce a follow, at Bruce Exclusive. Nick and Nolan show Thursdays and Fridays on the Buffalo Rumblings podcast network, bro. You're my favorite guest, man. I love talking bills with you. I just love talking about everything with you. So I booked this what, probably a good three, four weeks ahead of time. I told you, I said, I got to get you right after the draft, man. So thanks as always for coming on. It's always a good time to have you on. I appreciate it, Pat. All right, good people. That is going to do it for today's episode. Very big thank you again, Bruce Nolan, the Nick and Nolan Show, Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network, one of my absolute favorites. Love having Bruce on the podcast. So thank you very much, Bruce. Also want to thank today's show supporters, 26 Shirts, Audimute, Sounds Assured. Guys, gals, if you haven't done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast right now. And I mean literally right now. Rate and review, all that fun stuff. It only takes a second to do, and it really helps me continue to grow this podcast tremendously. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of them. Also, go check out YouTube, Talking Buffalo Podcast YouTube channel. 
I have highlight clips from current and past episodes up there. Some original audio content that you're only going to find on the YouTube channel. Not going to hear it anywhere else. Not even this podcast. So again, Talking Buffalo podcast on YouTube. Then last but not least, follow me on Twitter, at Pamoran Tweets. I'll tell you what, if you're trying to get a hold of me, don't email me, don't call me, don't text me, don't Facebook me. Find me on Twitter because I'm there 24-7, engaged with fans, talking about whatever. I'm just always on Twitter, so you can hit me up there. Thank you so much for listening. I say this every episode, and it might get redundant, but I really mean it. It means so much to me that you're taking time from your day to listen to this podcast, especially when there's so many good podcasts out there. Everyone's competing for your ears. So when you're taking your time, you're listening to this, it it does. It means the world to me. So thank you so much, guys. I really, truly mean it. Have a good one. Stay safe. I know it's getting harder and harder and harder to, to stay home and to be responsible and do all the things that we need to do right now. But Keep on keeping on and hopefully things will get better soon. Have a good one. Brand new episode coming up on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.